to read a passage of scripture. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. And we're going to talk a little while tonight about an individual from scripture named John the Baptist. Amen. So we say John the Baptist. Amen. Let's read this together. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? John's in a prison cell. These are two of his disciples going to Jesus, asking the question, Are you the one that should come, or do we look for somebody else? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which he do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? you got to understand that John, you know, he didn't do it how we probably would have. He spent the first three decades of his life in the wilderness. We probably, if we wanted to launch our ministry, we would go into a populous area and we would book a big center, you know, Madison Square Garden in New York City or something. But John didn't do that. He was in the wilderness. He never really left the wilderness. People came to see him. He was a big deal. He was making waves out in the wilderness, you know. And Jesus said, who did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Got some strong KJV language coming at you tonight. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. This guy's legit, you know. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Just want to speak for a few minutes on the subject. Are you the one? Are you the one? I don't know if I should do this. Turn to your neighbor and ask him, are you the one? It's okay. Just embrace the awkwardness. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your touch, for your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would have your way in every life and every individual that's come to service tonight. God, I know that there are those watching online perhaps, and I pray that you would speak to them as well. Jesus, we we desire for you to move and minister, not mere man's words. God, that's not what we want. We don't want just uh, a message that will, you know, tickle our ears tonight. We, we want your voice to speak clearly, and I pray that it would. Help me to get out of the way. Help all of us, our flesh, to get out of the way. Let your word and your spirit do a deep work tonight, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you tonight. You can be seated. By show of hands, how many of you have ever had something, you know, maybe you planned it out to the nth degree and it did not go according to your plans? Maybe a vacation, 
I don't know, maybe a school project. For me, it was a sermon illustration. And, uh, you know, I guess before I tell you the story of the sermon illustration, I feel like I should preface it by telling you about the strawberry turnovers that I attempted to make this past week. Because my wife, I mean, I got to tell you, and I, she, she's at home with our sick children, so she's watching tonight. And uh, I got to tell you, she, she was rocking it in the kitchen this week. I got to say that. I was hoping you'd give her a little applause or something, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, this afternoon I went home, I had leftover lasagna, and, and I was just, you know, reminded again that I've been deeply blessed of the Lord, praise God. She, she also, this week, um, she, she made, and, and I've told her that this could be on the weekly routine of meals, you know, I, I wouldn't mind. Uh, she made chicken pot pie. How many like a good old chicken pot pie? And, uh, and she did it, you know, with the pastry dough, but there's a little left over. And so I thought, you know, I'll attempt, I'll attempt to join in on the fun, bad idea. But, but there was a little bit and I rolled it out and I thought I'll make strawberry turnovers. And so I started to, in a saucepan, I know enough to get the strawberries going with a little sugar in there, breaking it all down, heating it up. And I wanted to thicken it. And so what do you add when you need to thicken that kind of stuff? Cornstarch, of course. Now, if I were a seasoned chef, I would know that you should probably get some water and stir it in and, and make a, a, a homogenous, you know what I'm saying, do that first and then slowly stir it in. I just dumped a bunch of cornstarch in. Yeah. And so it was, they tasted good, but every once in a while you'd get like this chewy chunk of awfulness. But it was fine. Now, I told you, for me, the thing that didn't go according to plans, of course, the turnovers, I still ate them. But, but uh, it was a sermon illustration. It was a few years ago. And, and I used to work at a bulk food store called Bulk Barn. And some of you may frequent there. And there's a product. Well, they sell cornstarch as a product, code 260. I'm still haunted by those codes in my sleep. And uh, so there was this one day, you know, we would get 50-pound bags of cornstarch in the shipment, and, and, uh, and I always thought it would be so awesome if I could have that amount of cornstarch in my possession because how many have, have done the cornstarch and water slime experiment before? Just raise your hands, and you're going to try it tonight if you haven't, and you'll be <laughs> very thankful that you did. If you mix it together, what you get, it's called a non-Newtonian fluid. That is the technical term. And a non-Newtonian fluid has different properties associated with it depending on how much force is exerted upon it. And so, for example, if you take cornstarch and water and you slowly lower your hand down into it, it's a liquid. But if you punch it, you're not getting down in. It's a solid. Again, you should try this at home. If you put your hand down slowly and then try to rip it out fast, the whole bowl's coming with you because it changes states, and that's what it means to be a non-Newtonian fluid. And I always thought this would make a great sermon illustration for when Peter stepped out of the boat and walked on water. You see where this is going. And so I, I, w I went to work one day, and, and I, I got word, there was a memo sent from head office that the cornstarch was bad or something, and, and it was uh, unsellable. 
And so my boss said that that cornstarch that just just came in the in the shipment, it's garbage. And I said, Oh no, it's not. <laughs> no, that is going home with me. And so I I did what any youth pastor in their right mind would do. I threw the 50-pound bag of cornstarch over my shoulder, threw it in the trunk of my Honda Civic, and after work, briskly drove to the church. And I, I, I committed the cardinal sin. I've been told, I, you know, I'm not some seasoned preacher by any means, but I've been told for many years, one of the cardinal sins that you can commit in preaching is never build a sermon around an illustration. I did that this day. And the sermon illustration failed, so that tells you what I was left with. Nothing. And so I, I get to the church, and I take this, this cornstarch, and I dump the 50 pounds into a clear tote, and I had this grand vision. I was like, I'm going to run across this thing in a youth service. The kids are going to love it. I have no idea what I'm going to preach about other than Peter walking on the water, but it doesn't matter what an illustration so I dump it in, and I start pouring water, and I start stirring, and I realize, just like I realized this week with my turnovers, I did it backwards. And, and I even, you know, I put food coloring in it, a bunch of tubes of that, and, and really, it wasn't a fluid. It was, it was just like this hunk of blue uh, moon rock-looking thing in a clear Rubbermaid tote. Needless to say, the sermon illustration failed. We can add it to our running list, the book we're creating, when sermon illustrations fail here at CCC. And, uh, and basically, the end of the story is, I carried that tote out to the corner of the parking lot, and I guess I got tired because I didn't put it behind a tree. I just dumped it. Did, maybe you saw it. There was like this hump of, of blue mess in the corner of the parking lot, and if, if, uh, if you ran over it and, and damaged your vehicle, I'm sorry. It's my fault. Didn't go the way that I thought that it would. And we all have stories like this, turnovers or sermon illustrations or vacations that went awry or whatever. Some stories are somewhat silly, maybe trivial, but, but certainly there are moments in life more significant that we can look back on or perhaps will someday experience in the future that are more challenging to grapple with and the needs presented to the church this evening, the families in times of loss, sickness that has racked bodies, and pain that has come, and whatever other circumstance might, it might be, sometimes life throws us a curve and things don't go the way we planned it. Loss of loved one, job opportunity falls through. You don't get accepted into your preferred school. A friend betrays you. Close family member walks away from God. Parents divorce. Many of the things could be added to that list. And these types of situations are of the sort that can blindside you and knock you on your back. And nobody gets excited when life doesn't go your way and you're left wondering, God, are you really in my corner? Let me ask you another question along the same lines but a bit more pointed perhaps. What do you do when God does not live up to your expectations? John had devoted his entire life to God and to the unique call on his life. He spent decades, literally, in the wilderness, in isolation, preparing 
to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He literally gave everything he had and everything he was to the cause of the kingdom. And for all of his devotion, you would think that God would perhaps cut him some slack and allow him to avoid the hardships of life. For all of the times that John stood for God, perhaps God could give him some preferential treatment. John was not one to back down when it came time for him to challenge false ideas, sinful behavior, John passionately and boldly stood up against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, for example, calling them, among other things, a generation of vipers. These were the religious elites. I mean, you didn't cross them, but John was not afraid. He stood on the side of truth. He spoke it even when it wasn't popular and could possibly get him in trouble, and that it did. And for his commitment to truth and to the kingdom, a prison cell was his reward. It doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem fair. And I'm sure that this is not what John had envisioned for his life. Many of you and many of us, we faced prison cells before. Not physical ones but emotional ones, mental ones, spiritual ones, circumstantial prison cells. And maybe you've felt held captive in a particular trial like John felt in Antipas' filthy prison. And when we are there, it is easy to question God and doubt his sovereignty in your life and ask things like, God, why did you not prevent this? Why doesn't God deliver me from this? Even so far as, is God real? Is God for me? The God that we sing about that never loses, is he really on my side? You hear this question a lot in society, if God really is good, then why is it so bad out there? And we can make it personal. If God is really so good, then why is my life so bad? And if I could just say tonight, it is okay to feel these ways. Because John did. And John is far from a failure. In fact, Jesus said that there's none greater than John, born among women. He's a, he's a good dude. He's a great guy. He, he's got it going on. That's what Jesus said. John felt these ways. As he sat in his prison cell, he literally began to wonder if Jesus was the Messiah. Evidently, he had doubts that the one he had devoted his entire life to was, in fact, who he said that he was. He, he doubted that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, because many other false messiahs had come and gone over the years, some probably throughout John's lifetime, and perhaps Jesus was just another one of them, another false messiah, and John had lived his whole life in vain. The prophecy spoken over his life by Gabriel to Elizabeth and Zacharias, perhaps, perhaps that was misapplied by focusing on this Jesus. It got to the place where, of course, as we read, John sends two of his disciples to visit Jesus, and they asked him the question on behalf of John, are you the one? Are you who you really said that you are? Or should I keep looking? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you really worth devoting everything that I am to? Jesus, are you really there for me? This was an overflow 
of doubt. If I could just say that it is okay to doubt sometimes. It's like that, that individual seeking for a healing in the New Testament. He said, Jesus, I believe, but you need to help my unbelief. It's okay to face the tensions as we seek to live for God. Come on, maybe, maybe you've come into this room and this is your first time and maybe you're wrestling with some questions from life. But can I tell you, you are in the best place you can be because as long as our doubts and as long as our questions are sent in the direction of Jesus, then we are going to be okay. What John could have done that would have been detrimental and devastating to his life is sit on his hands and sit on his bitterness and sit on his doubts for the rest of his life and rot in the prison cell until he was ultimately beheaded and get frustrated with God and never draw close to Jesus again. You see, John is an example to all of us that when we wrestle with questions and doubt, take it to the master. Take it to Jesus. As long as our questions draw us closer to him, it is okay to have questions and to doubt. Amen. Matthew 11, our text this evening. Jesus' response to the question, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus responded. He said, go and show John again those things which he do hear and see. And then he starts listing the achievements, you know. Verse 5, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And John's disciples, they would have taken Jesus' answer and they would have gone back to Antipas' prison and they would have relayed Jesus' answer back to their, to their leader, John. And as they began to recount what Jesus said, immediately John would have recognized the pen of Isaiah in the words of Jesus. Isaiah's prophecy was written in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. And Jesus had quoted the prophecy in the temple earlier in his ministry, thus claiming the title of Messiah for himself. And John listened to this answer from his disciples as they relayed the words back to him. And he was waiting for that last phrase from that passage in Isaiah that he was familiar with, but it never came. Isaiah 61 verse 1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, Jesus quoted this in the temple. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And John was taking Jesus' answer and he was checking off the list from Isaiah's prophecy, but he was waiting for this last statement and it never came. And the opening of the prison to them that are bound. He waited, but Jesus' answer, it, 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 it was something and it was, it was tangible, but it wasn't what he wanted to hear. Jesus was the Christ, he was the Messiah, and it was within his power to not only open blinded eyes, cleanse lepers, heal the deaf, but also to open the prison doors. But what do you do when things don't go the way you planned them? What do you do when it, when it seems like God does not rise to the level of your expectation of how you thought life was going to go? What do you do when Jesus seems to be working in someone else's situation, but not yours? People are being healed. People are being delivered. People are having the gospel preached to them. But John is not receiving his promise. 
It's in the word and he had it. It was his to claim it, but it wasn't happening the way he thought. We know from scripture, you read on later in the book of Acts, uh, Jesus has ascended. Peter, I believe in Acts 12, he's in prison. The church prayed and, and, and the doors were open for Peter and he, was, he, he walked right up to the house and he knocked and they didn't believe it, it, it happened for him. It was within the jurisdiction of Jesus to do that work. Happened for Peter. Happened for Paul and Silas who prayed and sang praises to God at midnight and the foundation of the prison was shaken and everybody's bands were loose. Not just Paul and Silas, everybody was freed. Jesus did that. Jesus can do that. But he didn't do it for John. What do you do? What is your response when others are getting deliverance but you are left chained in your prison cell. Jesus never recounted that final phrase from Isaiah's prophecy, but instead he inserts something different. Verse 6, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. When things don't go according to plan, don't get offended at God. When life doesn't live up to the expectation. Don't get offended at God. When God doesn't answer your prayer the way you thought he should, don't forsake him. It may feel like he's forsaken you, but he hasn't. Blessed is he that is not offended at me. When God doesn't live up to the expectations and life turns out way different than you envisioned and they're still far from him and and that relationship is still estranged and it's still a struggle to, to make the bills. Don't throw it all away and lose your faith when it feels like God has failed you. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. That's what we learn from the life of John, among other things, of course. But from the life of John, we, we learn the proper response to disappointment. I don't understand, but I'm not going to be offended. It seems like everybody else is getting their prayers answered, but I'm not walking away, Jesus. I'm still going to stand firm, and I'm going to trust in you. John's life, it ends in an abrupt and an unexpected fashion. You likely, likely know the end of the story, but it's worth noting tonight. In Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus, and, and he said unto his servants, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod, and then he goes back, he's recounting what had happened, had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in a prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John... Remember how I said sometimes he would stand for truth and it got him in trouble? Right here. For John said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have her, Herodias. Now, just to kind of give you context of what's happening, Herodias didn't like John. Not, not at all. And you'll see what she does here in a moment if you don't already know. Herodias wanted to marry Herod despite the fact that they were both already married. That's, that's a problem, you know. That's a, that's a big problem. Nonetheless, Herodias and Herod yielded to lustful desires. They married one another. But what makes it interesting and complicated is that Herodias' former husband 
happened to be Herod's brother, Philip. So, you know, th this is quickly devolving into one of those weird TV shows that you shouldn't watch. So, Herod has just married his sister-in-law. It is unlawful. And to compound the matter, Herodias happened to be the niece of Herod, okay? It, it was a mess. But John was not afraid of what might happen to him when he stood for truth and what was right. Despite the fact that his words could have cost him his life and ultimately did, he still boldly declared the truth and, and he still spoke boldly against the injustice and the sin. Verse 4, John said, it is not lawful for you to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude. Herod, he, he didn't want to kill John because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. Bring me the head of that prophet from the wilderness on a platter. And he sent, uh, verse 9, excuse me, And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake. And them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body, buried it, and went and told Jesus. You know, it really raises an interesting question tonight. Of course, we've been trying to explore what do you do when life disappoints you? What do you do when God does not live up to your expectations? But another question worth exploring is, how do you measure success anyway? Because when you think about the life of John, on paper, John's ministry doesn't seem all that successful. He lived a secluded life in the desert. He preached for a very short time, about six months, before being overshadowed by Jesus. And he faded into you know, oblivion, if you will, while Jesus you know, came into prominence. John ended up in a prison where he experienced doubt about Jesus himself, the one that he was uh, prophesied over that he would be the forerunner for. He, he experienced doubt in that prison cell, and, and then eventually he was beheaded, you know, in, in his early 30s. It doesn't sound very successful to me. But though by earthly standards John's life seems unsuccessful, we understand that he played a vital role in God's story of salvation, and he did the will of God no matter what it cost him, and by that virtue alone, John was successful. We, we measure success all kinds of weird ways in our society. We, we look at things like money, and we think that money determines a lot of success, and certainly by worldly standards it does. We look at bank accounts, and we look at how many zeros are on the end of your salary figure, and, and we think that that equates with success, not in the kingdom. The kingdom is upside down where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. We don't measure success with the same standard as the world. For those in school, maybe you look at your GPA and you think, well, I'm doing really good. I'm not suggesting you go and flunk all your courses, but, but grades don't determine success. Maybe we can look at things like the blessings of God and think, well, I'm, I'm more blessed than them, so I'm successful. Can I tell you a fun story? Is this okay? Is it too serious for this? So, so we, we, we got groceries the other day, and uh, 
A lot of food stories. And we, we've been doing that thing where you pre-order them, you just drive up, they put it in your car. It's amazing, the modern marvel of technology. And so I pull up, and, and they come out, and there was a little bit of confusion. I wasn't able to call ahead. My phone was dead. And so they came out, and they loaded my trunk full of, full of groceries. And, and, you know, I didn't really think much of it. I noticed that my wife had ordered maple syrup, and I was like, we have maple syrup, but whatever. So I drive home, and I get home, and my wife tells me, they gave you the wrong groceries. So I drive back. They felt horrible. And she said, everything in your trunk is damaged goods. We can't take it back in the store. And so she said, it's up to you, but you can take it home if you want. And I said, well, I'm playing it cool, you know. <laughs> I said, well, I mean, I guess I could do that. And so we, we were like, we felt like, I don't know, we felt like thieves or something. We, we'd take all this stuff that we hadn't bought and we set it all on the counter. We were taking pictures like it was Christmas. And we gave the credit to God. But let me tell you, my success in life is not determined by the amount of blessings or lack thereof that God puts in my life. By the amount of you know, grocery orders that Superstore got wrong. I'm not measuring my success as a child of God by that standard. Achievements, you know, whatever. In the church, we, we measure success by various things. We measure it by metrics. We measure it by attendance. We measure it by converts. We measure it by amens. And none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But can I tell you, that is not how we should only measure success. Those things have their place. Don't get me wrong. But success in the kingdom of God. Can I just make it plain and simple for you tonight? Success in the kingdom of God is doing the will of God and trusting in his will every single day. No matter how much it costs you, no matter what path it takes you down, God, I'm going to trust in your will, your plan, and your process. If it leads me to a prison cell, so be it. If it leads me to having a, a, a life ended sooner than I thought it should, so be it, God. I want to be a success, and I want to be faithful to your will every day. We would often, we, we would look at Noah and all of us, I think, just because he's in the scripture, we would say he was successful. But do you know that Noah was a man who preached for 120 years and saw this many converts? Aside from his family, of course. It was just Noah and the others, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And many would call that a failure. But Noah was not a failure. He succeeded because he did God's will. Every day he's swinging hammers, building that ark, and then he's going out and he's preaching, saying, hey, there's rain coming, there's a flood coming, you gotta join me to escape judgment, judgment day is on the way. And he was faithful to God's will, and thereby is a success. Did you know that Noah was listed in what we call the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11? There's actually many listed in the hall of faith and we celebrate them. But do you realize that none of them were achievers? Not, not all of them didn't really achieve everything they set out to do. In fact, it says it in Hebrews eleven thirteen: These all died in faith, not having received the promises. So if we were to measure these individuals in Hebrews 11 
by their successes and by their achievements and by how much they did or how many converts they had or whatever, we would call them failures. But they were, they were successful because they were faithful. They were successful because they said, said, God, I don't understand the path you have me on, but I'm going to trust it. And I have faith in you, God, no matter what comes my way. There was a book that I read a little while ago, and it was very much in line with this, this whole notion of John being in the prison cell. And I want to read you an excerpt from The Prisoner in the Third Cell. John, they have come for you. Much sooner than you had thought, in a few minutes you will be no more. There's no time to send word to your disciples nor to my mother, Mary, who has worried so much for your safety. You will not be given opportunity of even a single word to anyone, nor will you be able to ask again the question that you addressed to me. In less than four minutes now you will be dead. How many thoughts can be crowded into one's mind in four minutes? How many doubts? How many questions? Not many. But John, worst of all, there will be no answers. And blessed are you, John, if you are not offended with me. They have unshackled you. The staircase is before you. The door above is open. You can see the light of day above you. Why is this happening to you, John? You of all people. Your head severed from your body. Why? Because of an obscene dance by a teenage girl. How ironic. You will never live to see your 33rd birthday, nor will you know exactly why I have called you. Nor will you know if your life on this earth counted for anything. Those long years in the searing desert, you denied yourself of everything that this earth affords except food and water. And only enough of that to keep you alive. You did this all for me. Yet as you face death, there is no evidence that your life was anything but wasted. Have I forsaken you in the hour you need me most? And blessed are you if you are not offended with me. You have reached the head of the stairs. You are not sure which way they would have you turn. A guard points to the left and you follow. Is this happening? You have less than one minute before that immutable blank. You recall those long vigils before my face. Did you misunderstand me? Were you mistaken? Perhaps you did not hear my voice at all. In those years you lived alone in the desert, you never once knew love or comfort from another human being. Will I not extend such comfort to you now at last? You never had the pleasure of your own children to climb up on your lap to give you earthly joy. You never came in contact with a woman ever. You never had a wife. You, never, you, you have never known intimate love. You have never even had a friend. Your whole life was lived for your calling and for me. Will I not now in this last moment of your life part the veil and allow you to see something, anything of my purpose in your life and in your death? You will die wondering why I ate and drank as I did, why I did not fast as you fasted, nor pray as you prayed. Was the Messiah not to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? You will die today at the hands of unclean, uncircumcised, heathen, Gentile Romans. But your death at their hands will come about only by my sovereign permission. And you will die not understanding why I allowed this seemingly senseless act. And blessed are you if you are not offended with me. You will not see the multitudes cry out in jubilation at my entry into Jerusalem. 
Neither will you see me crucified nor hear of my resurrection and my triumph over death. You will die not knowing that you have proclaimed the coming of no less than the Son of God. Death is but a few seconds away, and still there is no answer to your question. You will die not understanding. And blessed are you, John, if you are not offended with me. They have opened the gate to the courtyard. There it is, the block on which you will lay your head. And there the man who will take your life you will be remembered as, the one, as one of the greatest men who ever lived, but you will not know that. Nor will you hear the Son of God say, of men born of women, there was none greater than John. Even now as you kneel, you wonder if you are a complete failure. You gave so much, poured out your life so completely, lived for God so singularly, yet despite all of this, you could not so much as win the favor of God to the point of his giving you one answer to one question. It was, after all, the only request that you ever made. I did not give you an answer. I never have. The question of why always remains unanswered in all my dealings with men. This is my way. But if there were one human being on this earth to whom I would make clear my purpose, it would be you, and it would be now. Above all other men or women who have ever lived, I would give an answer to you. John knelt and placed his head upon the block. When I called you, John, and told you that you would announce the coming of the Messiah, you assumed that because you were going to prepare the way for me, that you would have the joy of seeing that wonderful day of my coming in glory. But today you have met a God that you do not understand. And such is the mystery of my sovereignty. Such are my ways in every generation. No man has ever understood me, not fully. No man ever will. I will always be something other than what men expect me to be. I will work out my will in ways different from what men foresee. The guard has shifted his weight. The blade is raised above you. Death stands beside you. Die, my brother John, in the presence of a God who did not live up to your expectations. And blessed are you if you are not offended with me. Music, just join me here for a moment. I'm going to come in for a close here briefly. A day like that which awaited John awaits us all. It is unavoidable because every believer imagines his God to be a certain way and is quite sure his Lord will do certain things under certain conditions. But your Lord is never quite what you imagined him to be. You've now come face to face with a God whom you do not fully understand. You've met a God who has not lived up to your expectations. And every believer, from the oldest to the youngest, the seasoned saint to the first-time guest, Every believer must come to grips with the God who did not do things quite the way it was expected. That's where faith comes in. God, I trust you in spite of anything. You are going to get to know your Lord by faith or you will not know him at all. Faith in him. Trust that is in him and not just in his ways. Today, Perhaps you are resentful of those who so callously hurt you. But no, not really. The truth is you are angry with God because ultimately you are not dealing with men. You are dealing with the sovereign hand of the Lord. Behind all events, behind all things, there is always his sovereign hand, always. And the question is not why is God doing this? Why is he like this? The question is not why does he not answer me? The question is not I need him desperately. Why does he not come to rescue me? The question is not why did God allow this tragedy to happen to me? 
to my children, to my wife, to my husband, to my family. Nor is it, why does God allow injustices? It's the wrong question. The question before the house is this. Will you follow a God that you do not always understand? Will you follow a God that doesn't always live up to your expectations? Your Lord has put something in your life which you cannot bear, perhaps. The burden feels too great. He was never supposed to do this. But the question remains, will you continue to follow this God who does not live up to your expectations? Blessed are you if you are not offended with me. The prophet Isaiah declared in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, he said, For as my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. To think that I can get a handle on every nuance of the nature of God is a fool's errand. I won't always understand why he does what he does in the ways that he does them. The only thing left within my power and ability is to declare, God, I trust you. God, I, I believe in your word. I believe in your promises. God, I know your word tells me that I need to repent. I know your word talks about being baptized in your name, having my sins washed, being filled with your spirit. I don't really understand all of that, but you know what? I trust you, Jesus. I want to give my life to you, Jesus. I've been wrestling with some questions, God, and I don't know what to do with them. I don't know how to handle my, my family circumstances or whatever else, but, but God, I'm bringing them to you tonight. I'm trusting you. The prophet declared the discrepancy between God's thoughts and our thoughts, God's ways and our ways. The only thing left for us to declare is what Job declared in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Life might not be pleasant, but I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I don't understand, but I'm going I'm to trust you, Jesus. And that is the measure of success in the life of a believer. Not that I understand God all the time, but that I have faith in God, no matter what comes. I want you to stand with me tonight. I believe that there's a sovereign touch of the spirit of Jesus in this room right now. And I believe that God wants to draw every believer. I believe that God wants to draw somebody. Maybe you're relatively new to this. I believe that Jesus wants to bless you and touch you and minister in your life tonight. Can we just create an atmosphere in this moment through our, through our extended hands and our hearts heavenward? And can we just begin to pray and just allow God's spirit to flow in this room? Jesus. Oh God, we pray that you would allow this to resonate in the spirit of every individual in this room, everyone that's hearing this word tonight. God, let your word penetrate deep into the heart of every person. In Jesus' name, as you continue to pray, 
as a step of faith and as a sign to God that I'm standing on your word no matter where I am and no matter what life has dealt me. I want to invite everybody, if you're comfortable with it at all, just step forward to this altar area. We, oftentimes it's our custom to come around here and pray. I'm inviting you. You, you could be in here for the first time. That's all right. You're among family here tonight. And I want to... I want to have the opportunity and our church team would love the opportunity to pray with you if you have a need. If you've never repented of your sin, if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, if you've never felt the touch of God's Spirit upon your life, tonight is a great night for transformation and for change. And you two can join at this altar and say, Jesus, I don't really understand what this is all about, but, but I'm choosing to trust in your word. I'm choosing to trust in your promises. I've done this on my own far too long. But it's all you, Jesus. As you gather around, just lift your hands again. Lift your voice. And just begin to seek the Lord right now. Begin to let God move in this place. I will try.